Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power. And I'm joined always by Eric Eggers, Vice President of the Government Accountability Institute. Good to see you. Good to see you. So we have an amazing episode today, but we did want to announce up front um, that beginning next week, we are going to do a series of podcasts uh, based on material from one of my favorite authors. I say that jokingly, of no, course. No, it, it definitely is one of your favorite <laughs> authors, but it's you know one of my favorite authors too. I've got a uh, I've got a, a book coming out called Red Handed. We're going to be dissecting that in detail. It comes out January the twenty fifth, and I have to say the research in that book is uh, really the scariest that I've ever done. But that's going to be next week. Uh, this week we have a terrific guest, uh, a um, investigative journalist, New York Times bestselling off- author, uh, Christopher Leonard. Uh, who's written a great new book um, that is being hailed by everybody from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times. He's been on with Tucker Carlson. Um, He also runs the investigative reporting program at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. The title of the book is Lords of Easy Money. Uh, and it's about the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve is very confusing and difficult for a lot of people, including me. Uh, it brings to mind what Winston Churchill once said about the Soviet Union, that it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It's very confusing. But what we're going to do with Christopher today is talk about the Federal Reserve. We're not going to be able to address the full history, uh, but we're going to talk about who is the Federal Reserve actually serving? Is it serving the citizens of this country or is it serving other powerful interests? Um, it also, by the way, has something to do with, of all things, Eric, the Wizard of Oz. That's right. I got really excited when I was doing some research into Mr. Leonard. And, you know, he talks about and he compares actually Fed Chair Jay Powell as the mighty Oz. And so what's fun is he as he'll explain that the uh, the history of the Fed sort of parallels nicely with the period in time when The Wizard of Oz, the book came out. Now, you might think The Wizard of Oz is just about, you know, wicked witches and slippers, but it's really an allegory about the need for, you know, monetary policy. So you got Fall the Yellow Brick Road. In fact, Oz, O-Z, actually stands for 
ounces of gold. You know, Dorothy represents American and honest values. And sure, in the book, it's silver slippers. The scarecrow represents the American farmer. The tin man is the American worker. Mm. And the cowardly lion represents William Jennings Bryan. And so they follow the, get it, yellow brick road. It's about going to Washington, D.C., which is pushing the gold standard. But, uh, you know, we're not here to talk literary allegories. <laughs> we're here to talk to uh, Christopher Leonard. So, Chris, let's just start with this. Why are you calling and why do you compare Jay Powell to the great and mighty Oz? Well, thank you. Yeah, and I actually had a lot of fun with that because that happens at the end of the book when they're doing all these massive bailouts during COVID and he's just appearing via Zoom chats during all these things. I talk about how he looks like the flickering image of Oz. And, I mean, that's actually really significant because you mentioned earlier how the Fed seems so unapproachable and, and so complicated and what they're doing is kind of removed from our daily lives. But back in in that era when, when Frank Baum wrote The Wizard of Oz and even before that, you know, early 1900s, late 1800s, the politics of money creation was a, a retail level politics. People cared a lot about it. It was debated in the public square. That, that started to end with the creation of the Fed in, in 1913, but it's been really accelerated over the last 30 years as the Fed chairman, like, you know, Alan Greenspan, Bernanke, Jay Powell today, Janet Yellen, they try to present themselves as these sort of, you know, super genius people just who are just solving math equations on this Olympian level. Right. In fact, when you, when you go back and look at what they've done, they're human beings they're making policy decisions that create winners and losers in our society. And, and my book really takes a look at what's happened since 2010. The Fed has been engaged in an unprecedented experiment in, in money printing that started in late 2010. It's got a typical academic name called quantitative easing. Right. But the short headline is, you know, interest rates had brushed up against zero briefly in the past. The Fed kept interest rates pegged at zero for seven years. And then they undertook quantitative easing, which pumped over $3 trillion into the Wall Street banking system between 2008 and 2014. To put that in perspective, that's more money than the Fed created in the first century of its existence. It's actually three times as much money. And, and as you kind of alluded to in, in your earlier statement, th this money wasn't a neutral force. The, the Fed doesn't create new dollars in the checking account of, of ordinary citizens. It creates that money on Wall Street. And, and, you know, no surprise, the real winners of this policy have been the usual suspects, uh, Goldman Sachs, Carlyle Group, Blackstone, J.P. Morgan, the biggest of the big banks, and the financial speculators on Wall Street. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, I think on a personal level, I know people that are uh, retired, they're pensioners. Uh, it used to be they had savings, um, you know, to live on, uh, and they'd put it in a bank account, and they'd get 3 or 5% interest, and they were happy with that. You, you can't do that anymore. You're not going to get that from a bank. So explain to the audience specifically how this cheap money policy really helps Wall Street. In other words, wh why do they benefit so much from this? I think most people understand how it hurts them, the possibility of inflation, the fact that, that, that you have to basically put your money in the stock market to get some kind of rate of return. But explain how the big banks are the big winners with this approach of the Federal Reserve. You bet. And, and it's not just that the gains went disproportionately to Wall Street, which they did, and I'll explain. But yeah, as you point out, it punishes 
working people trying to save money. You know, God forbid you're one of the American workers who still has a pension. These policies have really hurt your pension investment's uh, ability to earn a yield on savings. So this really does trace back to November 2010 when the Fed, uh, under Chairman Ben Bernanke, decides not just to keep interest rates at zero, but to go below zero, as I put it in the beginning of the book, by pumping money into Wall Street. And, And here's how the Fed does it. You know, the Fed has one superpower. It can create new dollars out of thin air. And the way it does that is by purchasing things from this select group of 24 banks that are called primary dealers, and they're, they're literally licensed to do business with the Fed. So, so to execute quantitative easing, um, a, a Fed trader in New York, and I've been on their trading floors, uh, a Fed trader will call up J.P. Morgan and say, hey, I'd like to buy $8 billion worth of Treasury bonds from you. So J.P. Morgan sells those to the Fed, and then the Fed trader says, hey, look in your reserve account with the Fed. Boom, $8 billion just appeared. <laughs> right. So the, the Fed does that transaction again and again and again until it's printed trillions of dollars. Here's the key. At the time, the Fed knew that the way this was going to change the financial system was to create a so-called search for yield, okay? It was going to reduce the ability to to earn money by saving it, and it it was going to push these banks to make riskier and riskier loans. It was going to push companies out there in corporate America to take on uh, cheap corporate debt. It's sort of like what we've seen in corporate debt is the housing bubble all over again. So these policies, it created cheap debt, hyper-speculation on Wall Street, and a huge level of inflation in asset prices, because that's what this all really does. It stokes up the price of assets, whether it's the stock market, you know, stock prices or corporate bond prices, uh, leveraged loans. And I mean, that might sound great, I guess, if, if you've got a 401k, but we've got to remember that the top 1% of people in this country own 40% of the assets. And, and the bottom half of us, you know, half this country only owns 7% of the assets. So... Just mechanically, by the Fed, by the way the Fed works, it has stoked the divide between the very, very rich and everybody else, probably more than any government agency over the last decade. And you're suggesting that's a bad thing. No, just kidding. So, <laughs> <laughs> you think? It is. And, you know, I, I got to throw in, I, I, I try to tell this through human stories, because I really want this to be easy on people. I want someone to be able to read this book on a business trip and, and get it and understand what the Fed's doing. And, and one of my main characters is this guy who's a former uh, regional bank president from Kansas City named Thomas Honig. And he was giving these speeches in Washington saying, if we stoke this divide between the very rich and everyone else, if we bail out the banks while everybody else is left to fend for themselves, we're going to corrode trust in society. And, and, and he was saying that back in 2012, 2013, and, and I think the historical record shows he's right. Well, and, and just to put a, a, a finer point on that, uh, you have this divide, um, but the divide, I think, is even more extreme because the great growth in wealth creation in the United States uh, has, has been in Silicon Valley, but on Wall Street. I mean, in other words, particularly in Wall Street, um, and I'm not minimizing what Wall Street does, but it, it's simple. It's, it's about moving assets around. It's... 
you're not actually like a manufacturer or a company creating products. You're not even employing a lot of skilled workers um, in a lot of cases. So it seems to me you have the income inequality, but it's also very localized uh, uh, up on a certain group of people, which is essentially Wall Street and those that that uh, you know are in the business of trading assets. Well, and just quickly, what was the thing you told me when we were talking about this topic? You said that so the Fed because they've indexed the free money policy, they're sort of like held hostage by that. They're not going to be raising interest rates anytime soon. And what did you say about what happens when interest rates go up and investment in things like Silicon Valley goes down, right? Right. And we're already seeing that, uh, Chris, right? I mean, uh, Wall Street's had a bad few days here because of the pending increase in uh, interest rates. So we're seeing essentially what you're talking about beginning to play out um, right now, which is a lot of the big tech company stocks are way down. Uh, Some of them are off 8 to 10% or more because of these pending interest rate uh, increases that are coming. That's that's exactly right. I mean, the Fed is is trapped, and quite unfortunately, they've trapped the rest of us with them. And and, and to your point, what I really tried to show is how over the last decade, the kind of activity these policies encourage, incentivize. And and you're exactly right. I mean, I, I write about this industrial company in the middle of the country in Milwaukee, and, and these policies didn't in, encourage this company called Rexnord to build new factories, to hire new workers, to innovate, to research new products. It simply encouraged their management team to borrow super cheap debt, use it to buy back their own stock, and then pay the shareholders, and, and then load that debt onto the company itself. So you find you know, a typical situation whereby they, they begin slashing jobs, they, they move production to Mexico, and the workers really suffer. So that's why we've had a decade of these very, very, you know, concentrated gains in wealth through this hyper-speculation while workers are left behind. But, you know, if I could, as, as you just pointed out, unfortunately, the rubber is sort of hitting the road right now. Uh, we're finally seeing very hot price inflation, and that's going to force the Fed to do something it has avoided doing for a decade, which is to tighten the money supply. There's no other way to fight inflation other than tightening the money supply. And when they do that, these elevated asset prices are going to correct downward. And, and that's, that's exactly what we've seen the last couple of days. And, and I'm kind of worried to say it's just the beginning. Yeah. And one of the things we've talked about, cause, and what I think, what I love about this topic and your book and your research, and I've enjoyed seeing some of these other interviews that you've done, because I really do think like the things we've talked about, it's almost like these are different puzzle pieces. We've talked about the inflation crisis in America. We've talked about the mounting national debt. We've talked about the amount of wealth that's in, been infused in the Washington, D.C. area. And that, you know, for the first time ever, a majority of Congress is millionaires, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've seen these elites all come together. And I think like what you're talking about, the printing, the, the three and a half centuries worth of wealth creation in a three-year period, we just have pumped all this money, the vast majority of which has gone to the ruling class. Like I think it helps explain and speaks to all these other dynamics that we've been covering piecemeal. So I really think you can't talk about everything else that's happening in this country without speaking to just the infusion of free money for the big banks and where that's gone. It's gone to the elites. And they're the ones that, by the way, it's what we do. We study the nexus of private interests and public office. I mean, who helps shape more public policy than private interests and big finance? Nobody, right? So I think it just helps explain why we are here. Um, I guess, what would be the biggest negative ramification for what do you think is coming? Well, uh, 
okay, there's there's so much to unpack there. The biggest negative ramification for what's coming is it's almost guaranteed we're going to see financial volatility. Now, never underestimate the Fed's uh, you know appetite to push even further, print 300 years worth of money in a matter of a couple months, as they did in March 2020. That could happen again, and they could kind of forestall this reckoning, but inflation's going to make that tough. And, and what really concerns me is when you see this kind of volatility in financial markets, it transmits really quickly to the real economy. You, you see companies pulling back, they cut jobs, and, you know, th- the big bulk of the American population is just not in a great place to take another economic blow right now. That, that's what worries me so much. But if I could kind of follow up on what you said earlier, which is, you know, I feel like a lot of what you do in, in your program is look at the permanent ruling class and, and this intersection between big money and big government. That story is right here, and it's so interesting to me. Um, you know, there's been this kind of, quote, insider trading scandal at the right. Fed where these governors were making big stock bets. You know, that's bad. That's egregious. But to me, it's also kind of small potatoes. Right. Because bigger picture, when you step back, what you've got is this central bank that is working in the interests of Wall Street and not going against Wall Street, right? The Fed stokes the stock market on the way up, bails out Wall Street on the way down, repeat. <laughs> and, and, you know, you've got someone like Janet Yellen, who was head of the Fed, never involved in an ethical scandal. She leaves the Fed, goes and makes $7.2 million in two years giving <laughs> speeches to Wall Street, Right. comes back to head the Department of Treasury. Um, you know, we saw a similar thing with Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chairman. The difference is he doesn't have to disclose how much he makes as, as a consultant for this hedge fund called Citadel. So you, you see a tight alignment between these big money interests and these government agencies. Well, I remember somebody uh, describing during the 2008 financial crisis or shortly after that um, socialism exists in America. It, it, it exists for Wall Street bankers and the super rich, um, because that's essentially what the bailout seemed to be designed to do. Um, so the question, and by the way, we're talking to uh, Christopher Leonard. He's written a great new book called Lords of Easy Money. Highly recommend you go and get it. Um, but you also have this, this problem of the revolving door, right? You talked about Jan- Yellen, but when the Federal Reserve is looking for input or they're looking to add governors, yes, there are some academics that are brought on board. Those academics oftentimes have Wall Street ties to begin with, uh, but a lot of these guys are are bankers, right? Or or people that are sitting on these committees are bankers. The point I guess I'm making is the Federal Reserve is really not an entity decide, designed to serve the interests of the American citizens, right? It's basically a, a organization designed to benefit large financial institutions. Well, no, no question. And, and, and I try to quickly walk through the history of this institution. And, you know, interestingly, the, the Fed was created in part because of populist pressure back in the 1900s. Uh, our currency system was a real mess back then. There were literally thousands of currencies in the United States. And so you had the, the sort of agrarian populist movement pushing to create a central bank. And there were all kinds of fascinating ideas about how to do this, sort of like a decentralized bank of the people and things along those lines. And the the Senate and the, the bankers on Wall Street realized, wow, this train has left the station, there's going to be a central bank. And, and then you had the famous meeting, I'm sure you've all heard about it, Jekyll Island, right. where the bankers got together and said, okay, here's how we'll structure this thing. And this is so important. They said, 
we will create the Fed, but only we'll insulate it within the Wall Street system. Okay, the Fed will never supplant Wall Street, but it'll stand behind Wall Street. That's why we have this mechanism I just talked about, whereby the Fed can only create dollars in the Wall Street banks. It, right. You know, it, it can't create them uh, it, out there in community banks or in the general population. So I think, um, and by the way, we we really struggled with how to tie in a Jekyll and Hyde literary reference also because of the <laughs> Jekyll Island thing. We just couldn't get there. But thank you for, for bringing it up because we, we do try to educate and entertain. But so it's it's a bank. It's a tool designed to serve essentially the wealthy. It's governed by the wealthy. And it just strikes me in that. The fact that we now have more members of Congress that are millionaires than not yeah. seems like a, a particularly relevant point then, right? Because you now, let's say the people that are making these decisions, I mean, what you said about the time when Wizard of Oz was written, two presidential elections essentially were decided because they found all this gold in Alaska. And so they said, all right, well, we don't need to, I mean, that helped kind of swing the tide in a certain way and it cost Republicans mm -hmm. these elections at that time. But right now we don't really talk about monetary policy in terms of like that's not what decides elections. What decides elections are things that seem a little bit more cultural or less technical. Mm -hmm. And um, and so it, it seems like this might become one of the great untalked about stories. And we, we the elections will be decided on things other than this, even though this is maybe the most important issue that affects everybody. Yeah, and and to to me that's one of, one of the big points is I would like the politics of currency to become a retail political issue again, in the sense that. You know, the central bank should be serving the broader population. And, you know, that, that situation you just described of, you know, the richest Congress uh, that we've had, the insider trading in Congress and all these things we've seen. Here's one thing I noticed going back. I, I really had the luxury of reading through all the transcripts of all the debates inside the Fed. And, and it's not just that there's a small group of people looking out for their own interests but an insularity of thinking mm. that occurs. You know, when, when you've got, um, you know, Jay Powell, who's the current chairman of the Fed, came from the private equity industry, from Carlyle Group, straight into the Fed, into the Board of Governors. And, and you see the sort of mix between the PhD economists and, and the banking and the private equity people. And there can be an insularity to how, how they see the world and therefore how they respond to crises or, or economic conditions. And I'll tell you one thing that struck me is these these folks are not infallible. Time and time again, it was shocking to me yeah. how they would say one thing publicly and then in, inside these meetings admit they really didn't know what was happening or how you know how what they were about to do was going to work. Their forecasts were wrong. Uh, they they don't deserve an unimpeded hand on the levers. It's almost like having uh, people in charge of traffic in Manhattan that just take a helicopter to Teterboro anyway, right? Like, it's like, that. this is not part of our lived experience, yeah. Right. Well put, and yeah, and, and then get mad at people for getting stuck in a traffic jam. <laughs> so so uh, before we close, um, let's talk a little bit about crypto. Uh, like a lot of people, I've lost money on Bitcoin. Um, some people uh -huh. have some people have made money on Bitcoin. Um, but is by the way, Schweitzer never talks about investments <laughs> that go badly. So this is we're breaking some news on this podcast. <laughs> but so so is this part of the attraction? I mean, there's some very of course yeah. there's there's a lot of people out there that are out way out there who think crypto is the future and they have their theories. But there are actually some very serious thinkers in this space on monetary policy, very serious businessmen who feel that crypto is the way 
wave of the future is part of the reason uh, of the fact that that crypto moves us away from sort of the lords of easy money. And you actually have a a marketplace that's determined uh, and, and more effective in in maintaining the valuation of our currency. Yeah. To, to, to me, here's what what here's what's at the heart of that. The power to create money is just almost too much power, and we've recognized that. And so we've really struggled with how to structure this system because when you can simply create money out of thin air, it allows you to avoid those tough choices of do we raise taxes, do we cut spending, how do we have this system work? You can just print your way out of it, and it's such a great seduction. We put discipline upon that process for many decades by adhering to the gold standard. Okay, right, That was right. one way to impose discipline on it. That didn't work for a lot of reasons. We abandoned it, and then we tried to have discipline through, I guess, the wisdom of committee is what you'd have to call it at the Fed. We said, okay, we'll have wise people make these decisions free from voters and and try to impose wisdom. Crypto and Bitcoin imposes discipline through algorithm, Mm -hmm. and and I think that's what attracts so many people to it is, is there will be a finite supply of Bitcoin, and it's written in the code, and you can't have a super ambitious crypto chairman, uh, which would be the analogy of a Fed chairman, come in and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to you know, wildly experiment and push <laughs> all the boundaries of what the Fed can do and print all this money. So I, I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's the attraction. Uh, I'm, I'm just as you know, confused about crypto as the next person. Part of it is sort of an investment bubble that's driven by this stuff at the Fed. All these dollars are searching for good investments, and that's driving up the price of crypto. Uh, the future is is very difficult to determine. But but to me, an important point is maybe the most important um, quality you could have in managing currency is is wisdom and restraint, yeah. which is in short supply these days, right? Especially in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've been talking uh, to uh, Christopher Leonard. Uh, he is at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. He's written a terrific new book called Lords of Easy Money. I would commend it to you. Uh, Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we wish you the best with the book. Uh, you've been listening to The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer and Eric Eggers. Uh, next week, we're going to begin a series on my new book, Red Handed. Uh, if you're interested in listening to our other podcasts, you can find those on thedrilldown.com. Thanks so much for joining us.